0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned because the hits just keep on coming. Rick Burton and I met almost 25 years ago. I was at Universal Studios running the Global Corporate Partnership Group, and Rick, was at a great little creative agency back east called Clarion Marketing. And we spent a fair bit of time together in those, in those early days when I had first joined Universal. But he shortly then moved out west to his first stint in academia at the University of Oregon in the sports marketing group there. I should say that before he got to Clarion, he spent the better part of 12 years in Milwaukee at Miller Brewing. He was the national advertising director there. You probably remembered, less filling, tastes great. That was all on Rick's watch. And from the University of Oregon, after I wanna say five to seven years, he then answered the siren call for a CEO role. The Australian Basketball League was searching. Rick answered the call, was tapped as the incoming CEO, and he moved his family to Australia. Three or four years in Australia, and then another icon in the world of sport gave Rick a call, Peter Euboroth, a couple of decades post the LA Olympic Games, but was now the CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee heading into Beijing in 2008. Rick joined Peter as the chief marketing officer for the USOC. And just after Beijing went back to academia, which is where Rick is a professor now, at Syracuse University, teaching both graduate and undergraduate classes in leadership. Rick, can't thank you enough for joining the show today. Welcome.
1: Hey, Carl. Thanks so much, and it's great to be with you. And you and I do have this checkered career path that has crossed over, and it was fantastic that it happened 25 years ago, and it's great to be back with you now.
0: Well, it's great to have you, and and it's amazing. You know, time does have a way Of filling in the blanks. So I'm sure I might have missed a couple of moments in your uh, last 25 to 30 years. Uh, Fill us in a little bit and then catch us up on what you're doing now.
1: You know, I went from Miller, I was there 12 years, to Clarion, from Clarion to the University of Oregon, from Oregon to Australia, from Australia to Colorado Springs with the U.S. Olympic Committee, now the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And then David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent, said, I want you back at Syracuse and I want you to be the David Falk professor. And I thought, well, listen, if he's good enough for Michael Jordan, he's good enough for me. And, And I was pretty honored that he was as interested in me in bringing me back to my alma mater. So I've been here now about the last 11 or 12 years and it's just been great. You know, it fits me obviously really well because of the time in Oregon and because of the practitioner experience out in the world that I can give that to the next generation of leaders.
0: Well, listen, the point here is really to take the best of, not the worst of, but the best of those attributes that you learn from who you might call the best boss you've ever had in a very diverse career.
1: Yeah, and I think that there are two that come to mind, um, and both of them happen to be early in my career. It's kind of interesting. A lot of us, I think, aspire to be the boss. And sometimes you move relatively quickly out of being the subordinate or the employee into being someone else's boss. And yet you've always got a boss. You've always got a board of directors. You've always got a chairman of the board that you're accommodating or you're having to live with. But early in my career, there were two people at Miller Brewing Company that I think really shaped my life. One was a guy named Todd Clay. And I was just, I was real early in my career, public relations. I'm doing sports PR for Miller, which is sponsoring the NBA and the NFL and auto racing. And I think what I saw in him was compassion and kindness and grace and and understanding that, you know, I was a young guy. I was just starting a family. And I think he wanted me to succeed. For that, I think I've always been grateful that he was just a good guy, and I think all of us have worked for people that we liked working for, and we've worked for people we didn't. And he was one of those guys that I enjoyed. But the guy I'll probably talk more about today is a guy named Dick Strupp. Dick was the senior vice president of marketing at Miller, and I was at a kind of a pivotal point in my career. And strupp actually called me in for a meeting, and he, and he said, "You need to leave." And and it was kind of a you know a ground shattering that maybe not be the right phrase, but you know, I thought it was great that I had been loyal and I had worked hard and I knew the industry. And he was saying to me, you've really only known Miller Brewing Company and you really will learn so much more if you get out of here. And and I think that his encouragement, not that there was anything wrong with me, but to spread my wings, gave me the courage or gave me the, the impetus to to leave Miller and go to Clarion where I then ended up working with the National Football League and Universal Studios and the Indy 500. And I think arguably it completely changed my life.
0: So when Dick actually said that to you, did you have an adverse reaction at the beginning or did he do it in such a way that the composite of the discussion sort of left you feeling, you know what? This is This is pretty, pretty sage advice.
1: Yeah, I think the latter. And, and what was really special about Dick when he got to Miller... He was not an old time beer guy. He came in with a Pepsi background, as I remember. And and one of the first things he did, if you were an executive, you could eat in the executive dining room every day. And that was a really big thing at Miller. All the executives went into kind of this white tablecloth, very private setting. Uh, And Strupp was the kind of guy who said, screw that. I want to play basketball at lunch. And he found a bunch of us who really loved to hoop. And he said, we're going to start playing ball at the local outdoor courts, inner city Milwaukee. And a bunch of us at kind of like 1130 would run downstairs to the locker room, change into basketball gear and sprint up to this basketball court that was about a half a mile away. And Strupp's nature was that if you didn't take it to the rack, if you didn't drive to the hoop, if you weren't aggressive, if you weren't competitive, he really didn't want you working in his department, in his group. And so I think what I was learning from him in the the early days was really a competitive surge. But then that gave me that confidence with him and that assurance that he really cared about me when I sat down with him that day. And he said, listen, you need to get out of here. We're not going to reward you as much as other people will. Now, he could have been saying, listen, you're not fast enough, smart enough, good enough. All of that could have been true. But I think what was really interesting was he made me believe I had so much more upside. And listen, it leads to me ultimately becoming the commissioner of a professional sports league. I don't think that would have ever happened if I had just stayed in the trenches at Miller.
0: It's amazing how many folks, Rick, I talk with who attribute Exactly what you just described to one of, if not the best boss they ever had. And that is their belief in people, their encouragement of people, their support of people, not just in a day to day environment, but what Dick essentially said to you is you have a huge future and you've sort of tapped out here. You need to go get a little breadth, diversity, and you're going to learn more out there than you will here because. Pretty much, Rick, you've already learned what you're going to learn here, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I learned more. I've always said this. I learned more in two years at Clarion um, than I had learned in 12 years at Miller. Um, and, and it was kind of my MBA. Now, I got my MBA at Marquette while I was at Miller, but I got my MBA in business working on the agency side and really the breadth you just spoke about was being able to go from the NFL to Universal Studios to the Indy 500 to Gillette to Sprint. Where else are you going to get those kind of opportunities?
0: Well, you aren't, is the answer to that. And Clarion, to a degree, I would say was an incubator for several agencies to come, right? I mean, you left Clarion, but you worked with some folks that when Clarion sort of, if you will, fragmented... Those leaders went on to start other agencies, and the spawning ground at Clarion was amazing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and they ultimately became Velocity on the sports side, and I think they're now technically MKTG. And, and the agency world, is always consolidating and morphing and moving around, but you're absolutely right.
0: Well, Velocity sp- uh, spawned not only MKTG, but it spawned SJX. SGX became acquired by Chime, CSM, and I mean that the derivatives there, it's sort of like you know, the Yardbirds back in the day, right? Uh, you're Right, I mean it's Clapton, it's Jimmy Page, it's Jeff Beck, and those three guys in the early 60s spawned you know the names, Led Zeppelin, Cream, and Jeff Beck went on to be the lead guitarist for Rod Stewart, so We'll we'll sort of get back to music in, in a couple of minutes. So you leave Clarion. You've now been on the brand side at Miller. You've been on the agency side at Clarion. And all of a sudden you decide you're going to be a professor?
1: Yeah, I do something really counterintuitive. and and I ran into the story. I'll try to make it quick because I ran into a guy named Keith Cutler. Who would later become the publisher of, I think, Baseball Weekly for USA Today? And he and I had known each other from the Miller days. And Keith said he had just joined the board of directors for this brand new startup, which was the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. And I said, wow, that sounds amazing. Thinking in my head, I'd like to get on that board with you. And he was one of the few guys I think I've ever met in my life who kept his word. He said, you know, I'll put you in touch with him. And he did. And I ultimately met Jim Warsaw, who had started sports specialties. They ultimately sold to Nike. Jim wanted me to come out to the University of Oregon. Completely counterintuitive move. We didn't have any connection to the Pacific Northwest. But what it opened up for me was not only teaching, but then I hung out my consulting shingle. And I start consulting really for a lot of different organizations around the world. And it's where I start to get my international experience. I did a thing for the J League, the Japanese Pro Soccer League. Then I did a thing for the Philippine Basketball Association. A lot of this was because I had worked with the NFL. I did a project for the NFL, for the National Hockey League. And then the the, the coup de grace, I guess, is I start doing some work in Australia. And I had, this has nothing to do with the best boss ever, but I had that moment where my first time in Australia, I went, I'm meant to be an Australian this is where I'm meant to live. And, and I've since read about that, that other people periodically have these out-of-body experiences where they suddenly go, I'm not living where I should be. So being at the University of Oregon allowed me to open Burton Marketing Group, but also led to me then moving to Australia.
0: So while you were at the University of Oregon, how or even was Phil Knight involved. What presence did did Phil Knight have on campus, particularly around the sports marketing group?
1: Well, not not hugely close with the sports marketing group, but Phil there have been a lot of things written and said about him. By the way, his book Shoe Dogs is fantastic. But Phil is really loyal to Oregon and and has always cared passionately and I think he's always felt that his success was because of the University of Oregon. And he has never failed to not give back in really thousands of ways. And there are different buildings named at the university and different professors. I was lucky enough to meet him on a couple of occasions, and and he was gracious and kind to me. So I have nothing but good things to say about him. And I teach about his success as an entrepreneur every semester because I think he's one of those great American tales of a guy who dreamed up an idea and and said, I want to make a great shoe and I believe in it. And I taught a class at Nike. It was great that Nike allowed me to teach a class on the, the Nike campus in the Steve Prefontaine building. And I had occasions where Phil Knight was involved with my class and he was just really gracious for a CEO who was worth billions. He didn't have to do that.
0: Well, that's all true. And his legacy obviously continues at the University of Oregon, as well as in the sport of basketball on a global basis. So since we're on basketball and, and you're now figuring out that you really are an Australian, you move to Sydney or Melbourne? Sydney. And you take the the post as you're, you're now running what, what is essentially the NBA of Australia.
1: Yeah. David Stern and I used to joke that I would say to him, I'm the David Stern of down under because I became the commissioner. And he would say, and I am not the Rick Burton of up above. So, uh, (laughs) but, you know, David was a rabbi to me. and, And there were a number of occasions where, and really I could almost put David Stern in here as one of the best bosses ever. He wasn't my boss, but He was a mentor. As I say, he was a rabbi for me. And he was someone that I could go to when I faced an issue with running a league where I had only been the commissioner two years and he had been running the NBA for 20 or 25. And he was so kind to me. Anytime I was in New York, I would go in and meet with him and I would say, You won't believe what I'm dealing with now. And he would chuckle and give me a few thoughts on how to resolve the problem.
0: And let's talk about that a little bit because problem solving is what a leader does. All day, every day, it's easy to manage through the good times. The best leaders are very adept at problem solving, and they typically involve the core folks around them in helping solve that problem. And that sort of begets culture and teamwork and camaraderie, which you learned from Dick Strupp on the basketball court half a mile down the road. So what were the couple of problems that you faced initially going in as commissioner?
1: I I had one that was really interesting to me, and and just I'll try to make the story really quick. We had a star basketball player in our league, one of the stars of the Australian League, who was illegally tape-recorded police wiretap talking to a drug lord and saying how much he loved doing illegal drugs. And that story was then leaked to the media. And I woke up one morning, and one of my star players is kind of dead to rights, saying, you know, I love doing illegal drugs. And I now have a situation where I really can't use the evidence. It's, you know, it has not been legally acquired, but it has been played out in the media. And and I remember, I think, checking with David and saying, you know, I've got to bring this guy in. I'm going to have to be really firm with him. He's going to lawyer up. He's going to use the union, you know, the Players Association, and David was very clear to me that, you know, you've got to be very firm in these cases. You cannot back down. You cannot hide from things that bring the game into disrepute. And that's one of the things that commissioners are charged with, is making sure that the game is not sullied. Strange word. But, you know, and, and so I ultimately met with this guy and I said, and I, and I don't think I did it in a heroic way or in a, in a mean-spirited way. I said, You've got to work with me. I've got to suspend you. Work with me and, and I will work with you. Fight me and I have no choice, but I have to destroy you in the court of public opinion. So let's work this out. And I think that we ultimately did. And I think that I would look back now and say that David Stern deserved a lot of the credit for that.
0: Well, kudos to you for seeking the wisdom and guidance and advice from from David Stern. And by the way, you've just ticked off a few <laughs> amazing individuals that you, I think, would consider mentors along the way, David Stern being one. Um, So you solve a number of problems, human relations, meeting public relations, being, you know, foremost in that circumstance you just described. So now, you know, you've sort of, I won't say run the course, but you've been in Oz now for three years plus and four, there you go. Explain to me and our listeners what happened... And how did Peter Eubaroth, USOC, now USOPC, come to fruition?
1: You know, it sounds too good to be true. Peter and I were in China together. Uh, there was a major sports conference that would be put on every year. I think it was called Sport Accord. And Peter was one of the guest speakers. And I had been doing a lot of moderating for the IOC and for Sport Accord. And I was a moderator that year in Beijing, and it was in advance of the 2008 Olympics. And Peter and I were in the green room together. And Peter was talking to me and said, you know, I'm, I need a, a chief marketing officer. And I said to him, I said, well, if I had the opportunity to serve my country, I, I would be hugely interested in that. And it was just one of those happenstance things and I, and I talk a lot about this with my students which is your career can pivot on the smallest of discussions on the smallest of windows of opportunity that I think a lot of us tend to think we see them but when you look back on the entirety of your career you realize that there were more than a few cases where you just were really clumsily lucky and Peter and I were in this room and I said if I could serve my country I would be honored to do that and I think he took that to heart. And Peter, as you know, is a fantastic leader, but someone that is comes at it kind of completely differently than most people ever traditionally have.
0: Right. And I mean, he's iconic. You know, he I think, being the sort of I'm not an historian by any stretch, but the Olympics is in my DNA. We'll just say that. And so the modern era of the Olympic Games, really from from all aspects, from an organizational perspective, from a commercial perspective, from a legacy perspective, from a P&L perspective, Peter Ubaroth I think, is close to being single-handedly responsible for where the Olympics are today, notwithstanding the current environment that we're all dealing with.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you've just hit it on the head. What he did in 1984 with Los Angeles— transform the entire IOC. And I think he should forever be credited with really in a lot of ways saving the modern Olympics or the post-1984 Olympics will forever be, in my mind, a legacy of what Peter did by taking over the LA games when no one else really wanted them, putting them on so that they didn't bankrupt the state of California or the city of Los Angeles, and really underpinning the financial foundation of the USOC for really what would be decades to come. And so I sit here, you know, as a fan of having had the opportunity to work in close proximity to, I think, one of the legends of our industry. And, you know, you kind of called me out lovingly for dropping names, but it's funny, you know, best boss ever. I've had this good fortune to be able to interact with a David Stern or a Peter Uberoth and be shaped by that.
0: Well, clearly, and it has held you in great stead, having known you all these years. I, I know that to be true. So a couple of quick Peter Uboth questions. From the moment in the green room where you had, in your words, you know, the clumsily lucky conversation to you actually taking the role was how long?
1: Not that long. Uh, you know, I would think it happened in probably less than four months, if I had to guess. I mean, he had a need, as I recall that they needed to fill the position. And, you know, the the Beijing Games were August of 2008. My guess is this would have been mid-2007. And listen, Peter was a, you know, a very, his company was the contrarian group, as I recall. That's, you know, his company was, he came at things differently. And I think if he believed he had a need, he was going to go out and he was going to deal with it. And as I say, I ticked off a box for him as being someone that, for that moment in time, he thought had the capacity to maybe help the USOC.
0: Right. And so you stay with Peter how long post-Beijing?
1: I'm not there that long. Let's see, the games were in August, and I think I left kind of that November or December. I was not there too much after the Beijing games. And listen, I can be honest with you and say that, it is no party working inside the olympic movement i think a lot of people would believe it's glamorous it is it is a really tricky space because you're you are a national olympic committee but you're beholden to the national governing bodies the sports that make up the olympic movement the international federations the ioc the media the sponsors there are a lot of moving pieces to the olympic movement and Anytime they make them happen, and right now we're looking to see whether Tokyo will happen in 2021, anytime they make the games happen for our elite athletes, there are a ton of people who have been working tirelessly behind the scenes.
0: Well, there's no doubt about that. And you and I know that inside and out. That's kind of a PhD in the Olympic movement. We could get to that at some later discussion, which would actually be a really fun one. So David Falk calls. You're a Syracuse alum. Uh, and he says, listen, Rick, here's what I'm doing. And here's what I would like you to consider doing.
1: Yeah. You know, my wife's family was from the Syracuse area. We had been kind of out in Colorado and and this was a chance to come back East and, and it was coming at a good time in my career. I thought, Hey, I can take what I did at Oregon with the Warsaw sports marketing center. I can come back and be an endowed professor at Syracuse And that's going to also allow me to do a couple of side hustles, which is in the back of my mind was I had done a lot of consulting when I was at Oregon. But one of the drivers for me was I also wanted to write books. And it was going to give me that opportunity to finish my great American novel, which is probably perhaps neither great nor novel, but I wrote it and self-published it. And also to do some sport industry books And ultimately, and I I should hold up a picture, but it wouldn't do any good in a podcast. I had the good fortune to be able to co-author a book about the history of Syracuse University because this past year, 2020, was Syracuse University's 150th year. And I had a chance to co-author a book called Forever Orange, which were really all the great stories about all the great people that have ever been involved with Syracuse in one way or another.
0: Well, let me just call one out. The lacrosse player turned all-pro Hall of Fame football player, Jim Brown.
1: <laughs> and arguably the greatest lacrosse player ever and the greatest football player ever. I know the GOAT. I know I know what's got to be said about Brady, and I take nothing away from Tom, but my vote would have to go to Jim Brown, probably the Syracuse bias. But the game was a lot different in the early 1960s from what it is today. Well, no doubt. And that guy, he he was, you know a
0: thoroughbred athlete through and through and he left it on the field and he put it on the field and he was great to watch. Anyone who never got to see any film clips of of Jim Brown, you know, go find them because they're, they're worthy of the few minutes of time it, it will take you. So here you are at Syracuse. You've been there over 11 years. You've got a book in the works. You are a trusted contributor across, really, the pantheon of sports journalism from Sports Business Journal, which is sort of the Wall Street Journal of Sport, to a wide variety of, of local, regional, and national, and international publications. So you're a professor of leadership, or you're, you you may not call yourself that, but I know that the current class that you're teaching is all around leadership. To what extent, Rick, Has your experience, those mentors and bosses you've referenced over the past few minutes contributed to sort of the the basic tenets and curriculum and syllabus with which now you teach classes?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of keywords that I would use and that I probably come back to a lot in my classes. One is curiosity. Uh, I think leaders have to be endlessly curious, and I think I've learned that from others, they had to be buttoned up and detailed. I think there was no one better than David Stern. I think they've got to be aggressive or competitive. And I give a shout out to Dick Strupp. And I think they've got to be interdependent. And, and it's a word that I take from Stephen Covey's book or from Malcolm Gladwell. I use Covey's Seven Habits book and, and Gladwell's Outliers in my class. And the interdependence of knowing when to ask for help and how to ask for help and developing your social savvy I think are huge parts of leadership. And for me, the the young men and women who want to go forward in the sports industry, who take my class are curious about the kind of traits they're going to have to have. I think the other one that you and I would agree on instantly is integrity. And I talk a lot of times about the fact that it's real easy to think you want to cheat in so many facets of your life. And I think that I don't think you'll hold up long at the top if your integrity is, is unassailable.
0: Well, truer words were never spoken and, and, you know, the humility that we both have for that, I think is, is, a, you know, sort of speaks volumes. And I look forward to to hearing more, Rick, I'm looking forward to your, to your next book. And, uh, you know, for everybody on this podcast, Rick has asked me and I, and I'm humbled and honored to be a guest lecturer at one of his classes coming up here in the next couple of months. And that's going to be really fun. Rick, we've got a few minutes left, and there are four bits that I ask every guest, and they're all good ones. So the first one, the favorite mistake you ever made, the one you learned the most from
1: I was opening my mouth at the wrong time, probably really quickly. I was working for Miller, and we were broadcasting. ABC Sports was broadcasting a bowling tournament. And it was one of my very first assignments. And at the end of the tournament, the executive from Miller would give the trophy out to the winner. And the ability to give the trophy out determined was determined by whether there was enough time left at the end of the show. And I was asked to go find out whether or not there was going to be enough time left. And I came back, the ABC producer said, there will be. And so I said, there's going to be enough time. And there wasn't. And I got chewed out for something that I didn't do wrong, but for probably not fully understanding that... You've got to be really diplomatic when you think you know the truth. There's a really good chance that you don't. Oh,
0: that's a really good one. Uh, your favorite female artist, band, singer-songwriter?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Eva Cassidy, and I think you know the the CD "Time After Time," taken from us, you know, far too early, mid '90s, but a, a soprano voice that everyone has acknowledged is she just had amazing pipes and so many people i think now have gone back and rediscovered the handful of cd's albums that she did while she was still alive
0: boy that's a great call a fun one i really believe humor in the workplace and and fun but but really humor you know, there's a difference between being humorous and being funny. So the best humorous moment you can recall where you may have diffused tensions or avoided a problem before it came one.
1: I love the, um, and you see it on t-shirts every now and then, and it's the uh, pirate line. it usually accompanies a skull and crossbones and it says the beatings will continue until morale improves. And and I think I've probably used that line a couple of times when things are really tense to kind of get people into the right context. I don't know if that completely answers the question, but I think I agree with you so much that humor is so key in our lives. And and given what we've just gone through in the last 24 months, we need humor, I think, to lighten the mood quite a bit.
0: Completely agree with that. And that's that's a great line, by the way. So the last one is the pithy one. You and I, you're a wordsmith. You're a writer. You do it as a vocation as well as an avocation. So words matter. Your favorite word and why?
1: Favorite word and why? Well, I used curiosity already. It's it's one that never fails anyone, and that's love. And I apologize in advance to the listeners that that's just so hokey, so lame. But let me tell you why, and really quickly, because I know we're out of time. I lost my mom and dad recently. Both of them died in their late 90s. Mom was 99, dad was 98. They died within four months of each other because the survivor had a broken heart. They were married 79 years. And, and 79 years, I mean, you talk about 80 years of being married. And the thing that they demanded of all of us kind of was that we understand how important love was. So if you hear me choking up because I'm talking about them, it's, it's partly because my wife and i will celebrate 40 years of marriage this year and and i think you you have to love your family you have to love the people who dislike you you have to you have to love your faith again it's a cop out word but it's a good one
0: it's not hokey it's not lame and it's not a cop out it is at the core of being a human being and we are all that and whether we choose to acknowledge it or not Love is the way, love finds a way, and above all else, you love. That's an awesome way to end this, Rick. I can't thank you enough for being with us. Your wisdom, your experience, you know, we should all be so lucky as to have a professor like Rick Burton.
1: Thank you so much, Carl. I look forward to seeing you in person when it's safe. You bet, man. You take care now. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.